Guys, it's been a rough year. It's going to get rougher, and you deserve a little treat for not going insane yet. You could head to the local tiki bar and tell the bartender, do your worst. But we have a better idea for you, which is pick out something from the Crooked store. The store is stocked with tons of new merch. It's perfect for the spring. And classics like the Friend of the Pod tees that you'll be wearing long after the next administration or the next fascist dictatorship, depending on how things go. Pick up a new tee for the warm weather ahead, a mug that'll remind you to stay involved this election year, or a hat celebrating your favorite pod. Go to crooked.com slash store to shop. Hello and welcome to Hysteria. I'm Alyssa Mastromonaco. And I'm Shaniqua McClendon. Shaniqua, I have heard some wild goss here on the East Coast that daylight savings has become very controversial in the crooked offices. Where do you stand on daylight savings? I actually am in favor of daylight savings. The whole point of it is to have more daylight in a day. And that's when I do things. (laughs) You know, the sun is typically like what wakes wakes me up if I don't have an alarm clock on. And yesterday I had to wait to go out for a run. Like I got up and it was almost seven o'clock before I could go outside because I would never go run outside in Hollywood without like some sunlight or daylight. But yeah, I just, I don't know. I think it's smart. I think it makes sense. And all the industrial reasons that they came up with it to like save on energy costs and stuff. I mean, that makes sense. But for me, I just like the sun being out. I mean, I've like never really thought about it much. I mostly only knew about the daylight savings controversy because Jonah made it a cornerstone of his campaign on Veep. He was, <laughs> that's how he got the whole his whole caucus together. It was like the anti-daylight savings caucus. But anyway, we have a lot to get to. So we're just going to get to it. Today, we're joined by Monica Lewinsky, Shaniqua McClendon, Grace Parajani, and Michaela Watkins to tackle the following questions. Are Democrats okay? Can we really look at our 20-something selves honestly? And has Monica Lewinsky ever met Ken Starr? All that coming up now. Shaniqua, yesterday was election day. Mm-hmm. What the fuck's happening in Virginia? Well, Terry McAuliffe lost. I'm really sad about it. But also, it looks like we're going to have an even split in the state legislature. That was also something that was really important. Uh, Democrats maintaining the majority there, which uh, seems to not be on track to happen. And then, you know, not just Terry McAuliffe, but the other two statewide races that were on the ballot, Republicans won those too. So that's the lieutenant governor, which would have been electing the first black woman to that position in Virginia. And the attorney general, who some pictures surfaced of him in blackface when there was an entire scandal in Virginia a few years ago. But, you know, the incumbent attorney general lost as well. And so just a a tough night in Virginia for Democrats. I'm not going to make any predictions or give any hot takes on why they lost. I think we're going to have to wait for a lot more of the information to come out about who voted for who. But I will comment on things I've seen. Um, And it looks like a lot of suburban voters, particularly white women from exit polls, which are not notoriously reliable, but have swung a lot over to Yunkin. (laughs) It it tells us a pretty clear story about the tolerance level for Trump and every other kind of Republican. And I think it's something that Democrats really need to be prepared for, because I can guarantee every Senate and gubernatorial candidate, uh, Republican who's planning to run next year, has 
taking notes on what Glenn Youngkin was able to do. How was turnout overall in Virginia? It was actually higher than in 2017. So something that's been really interesting to me, and again, we're going to have to wait for these numbers, is, uh, you know, maybe Trump expanded the Republican electorate in a way that is here to stay. I was always interested to see, you know, did Trump bring all of these new voters out and then they would go back to kind of not participating as much if he wasn't on the ballot. But from what it looks like, uh, either he was able to bring out these new people and Glenn Youngkin was able to keep them engaged, or maybe some of the switches that we saw um, account for, you know, the shift in the election outcomes, because both on the Republican and Democratic side, like the numbers went up. So we'll have to see what the specifics of those numbers are. But the big thing I think we can take away from going back to 2016 is Donald Trump being elected not only brought a lot more progressives um, into the fold, just paying attention progressive voters, but it also brought a lot of conservative voters, a lot of far-right conservative voters into the fold as well. And generally, people are paying attention to elections now, and you have to make sure you're talking um, talking to them. Because if you don't, you know, <laughs> the candidates who are reaching the voters are getting their folks to turn out. And Democrats can't just expect people to show up without, you know, a message that is resonating with them. Well, and part of it, too, is for folks who aren't aware, Joe Biden won Virginia by, what was it, 10 points yeah. in, in 2020? So one year ago, Joe Biden won the state by 10 points. And now it looks like Yunkin's going to win by what, about two? Yeah, yeah. And, you know, I, I think that is really important to point out. But I also think it's important to remember that Joe Biden was really unique even last year because a lot of down-ballot Democrats did not do well. Um, We didn't win a lot of Senate seats we expected to win, and especially at the state legislature level, Democrats did not do well. And so I think, honestly, we could have looked at what happened last year to kind of suss out what might happen in 2021. Joe Biden was running against Donald Trump, and I think something that we could see in the election on Tuesday with Terry McAuliffe is that he— seemed to think he was running against Trump, too, and he wasn't. And I think voters understand who's actually on the ballot. And you need to be running a campaign against the person you're actually running against, not just trying to equate them um, to someone that voters can clearly see is not the same person. One of the things I thought was interesting last night, and I wonder if you, I would like a hot take on this one, (laughs) is that I saw independence broke for Yunkin. Yeah, yeah. I, I really do think that Trump was a just a bridge too far for a lot of people. And we're really going to have to reevaluate a lot of the wins we saw for Democrats under Trump. In 2017, you know, you look at um, John Ossoff, a lot of attention on that race. Donald Trump had just won. And so people were eager to pour in and into any race anywhere uh, and help out. And, you know, Connor Lamb won as well in between that time. But I think once we got to the actual midterms, that is where you just saw all the kind of energy release to say, we don't like Trump. And then you get to 2020 and Trump is gone. But again, you had the opportunity to elect a lot of other Democrats. And Joe Biden's the one who did well out of all of those Democrats who were running. And so I think we're really going to have to kind of take a step back and evaluate the wins we had and measure it against like were people just responding to Trump. Because I think you started to see that response wane as we got closer to the opportunity to actually get rid of Trump, and now he's gone, and that's not going to be something that mobilizes people. I don't think we can keep focusing on uh, Trump as much. And that's why I think independence, from what we can see, probably shifted back over. Also, probably, here's my hot take, that's not that hot. (laughs) 
independent, like if you actually dig down in the data on independence, like it's a lot of people who actually identify ideologically with one of the parties, but want to be like, you know, I'm independent. I don't, <laughs> I don't identify as part of one of the parties. That's okay. So going into election day, there was a lot of talk on a Twitter on cable on all the best places to get your information uh, that Virginia was getting closer and closer. One thing I think most people will admit they did not see coming was New Jersey. New Jersey, as we record today, (sighs) Wednesday afternoon, is still very, very close. Last I checked, I think Murphy, uh, the Democrat, was up by about 5,000 votes. But up until I went to bed last night, I mean, they were separated by like 60 votes at one point, a county that is blue as blue can be, Bergen County, I know it well. My mom, I think, lived there, grew up there, went red last night by a pretty reasonable, decisive margin. Shaniqua, what the fuck happened in New Jersey, too? I, you know, (laughs) I don't know. (laughs) I know that's not what you have me here to talk about. But I will say this about both um, Virginia and New Jersey. You know, anecdotes can't do what actual, like, empirical data can. But it really does seem like messages that Republicans have been using, again, they did this in 2020, um, things that Democrats are just like, no, there's no way that this misinformation, people are not going to fall for this. People won't believe this. There's a lot of messages that are breaking through. And unfortunately, you know, COVID, from a political standpoint, whoever's in charge is getting blamed for that. But so on top of the governor's races, we didn't mention the Virginia State House. What happened there? Yeah. Um, well, Republicans have also won that. Um, it seems they have done a clean sweep in Virginia. Um, Democrats just flipped it in 2019 um, and had about a, I think, four or five vote margin, uh, which helped with some Democrats who would not always support what Democrats were doing. But now Republicans have control of that. And so right now, Democrats have the state Senate, which we'll see if they can um, kind of withhold the legislation, the unfortunate legislation that I'm sure we're going to start seeing coming out of the House and just try to protect the state. But yeah, Republicans have, um, they've done pretty much everything that they set out to do in Virginia. And, you know, we're going to have our work cut out for us next year. But I think we started to see the writing on the wall for this, especially state legislatures last year. And Republicans have um, been able to just take advantage of manufactured crises that they've made up. They've really just ginned up a lot of fear in, in voters and unfortunately are reaping rewards for it. And one thing I'll add here that I think is something that we can take away from what happened in Virginia across the country is Democrats have to get serious about misinformation. Like we can't just let it happen and be said and not do anything to combat it. It's difficult. Yes, we are... Ha- fighting an uphill battle, it's a, it's much easier to just say things that are not true and just kind of let them uh, go out into the atmosphere, the voting sphere. But um, we have to get serious about combating that because it's harmful uh, to our democracy, country, and world, but it's also part of the reason we're probably losing elections. Here's my hot take. It's not even a hot take. Mm-hmm. It's just a thought. But Earlier in the year, we had on Hysteria both Jennifer Carol Foy and Jennifer McClellan, two of my faves who are electeds in Virginia, who were both running for governor. And McAuliffe 
I'm so happy to talk about this. I wasn't going to bring it up, but since cleared you Cleared the field. <laughs> and when you look at, and again, like we're saying, we're not trying to be pundits. There's still a lot of information to come in. But when you look at areas that the Democrats lost last night, like Norfolk, Hampton Roads, um, it's hard to imagine that two, I mean, I think either one of these women would have been a fucking fantastic governor. Mm-hmm. It, it's, I wonder if their outcome may not have been if people might not have been a little bit more motivated to get out and support one of these two ladies. Yeah, I I think we have to think about that. Now, Virginia doesn't, Virginia's not Georgia, for instance. Georgia has a lot more, um, the percentage of non-white voters is a lot higher. But, you know, looking at candidates um, of color and the way that they're able to excite the, excite progressives uh, Mm -hmm. more than some of the centrist candidates, it would just, be malpractice for us not to like talk about that and consider right. what could have happened if we had a different candidate. You know, we've already seen the finger pointing about who's to blame about Terry McAuliffe's loss, even though it seems like enough people aren't like looking at Terry, uh, blaming progressives and the fact that uh, the bipartisan infrastructure deal didn't get passed. But my friend, she said she probably talked to hundreds of voters just knocking on doors and sitting at the poll. And most of them like had no idea what the BIF was. They didn't know that right. there was this bipartisan infrastructure bill that moderates have told us is the key to success and uh, progressives are trying to pair with Build Back Better and kind of pass all this stuff together. But she did say that a lot of parents were actually pissed off about the comment Terry McAuliffe made um, about, you know, parents don't get a say in their kids' education. And people, especially politicians, slip up. They, They have gas. But that a lot of people felt like he was pretty dismissive that they were concerned that he said that and didn't, you know, really try to make the case that, oh, no, you know, parents absolutely should have a say in what their kids are learning. Um, And to take a a step further, that is something, you know, when I think about parents of color have been told that all the time, like, no, we know what we're doing. We'll teach your kids. You don't get a say in, you know, who's in the classroom, what information we're teaching them. And so it's, I, I think that probably annoyed a lot of people. And something else she said was, a lot of people needed to be reminded that there was an election. You know, they'd knock on doors and they'd hear, oh, oh, yeah, I do need to vote. And so, again, something that I think we can always learn is that we can't just invest in ads. Like, we actually have to be talking to people uh, to make sure that they're invested, that they know that there's an election coming up. And, uh, you know, just to throw in a campaign we have going on, that there are no off years. There are elections every year, and we should be talking to voters year-round all the time just to make sure that they know that and know when they can plug in to to exercise their right to vote. And one last thing that I saw yesterday that I would like your take on, in Minnesota, there was a policing reform initiative that was voted down. Can you talk mm-hmm. a little bit about that, what it means, what people are saying it means maybe and what it actually means? Yeah. Um, so the ballot initiative, probably if you just read about it, you know, quickly in the news, it sounds like it was eliminating uh, the police department and there would be no form of uh, public safety in Minneapolis. But what it actually did was it would, on paper, eliminate the police department, but it would replace it with a public safety office. But they also would still have police officers to respond to, um, you know, the things that police officers respond to, but they would not pour as much money into police officers specifically to respond to everything. So that ballot initiative was voted down. And a lot of people are taking that to mean, um, you know, kind of bringing it back to defund the police and saying this is a rebuke of that messaging. Now, one, 
there was about a 10-point difference in support and opposition for it. Now, in elections, mm-hmm. that's huge. But I think that, for me, that 10% was a lot smaller than I would have expected, given the narrative around uh, right. defunding the police. And it's tough because even when I was reading through the actual text of the ballot initiative, the language is not very clear and specific right. that there will still be police to respond to things like domestic violence. Um it just kind of makes it a little ambiguous. And this ballot initiative doesn't, like, actually describe what— ha- it, it doesn't even determine what happens next. You know, that goes over to um, city officials to decide exactly what this new right. framework will look like. And so I think it probably was a lot of steps that maybe were not as clear to voters. Um, but I still think that the campaign for the ballot initiative had to do well— to be able to get um, over 40% and a climate that has continued to tell us, like, defund the police is going to ruin everything Democrats touch. And one thing I'd add to that, I keep seeing this commentary around the Minneapolis ballot initiative failing, but in Austin, um, there was actually a ballot initiative uh, to increase funding for police that failed. And so voters there decided, you know, we don't want to give police officers more money. And this is after the city had reduced funding for the police department and spread that money to other agencies that could be helpful in responding to, you know, public crises. So I I feel like it's very convenient when people pick and choose what things they want to cover to push a certain narrative. Larry Krasner won. Um, You know, we knew he was probably going to win this general election, but he also won um, a competitive primary. And so everywhere is different. Uh, And I, I don't, I just, I don't want us to pull these large narratives about every election around the country next year, because if you can point to Minnesota, I can point to Austin. Like, we can all pick and choose uh, the stories we want to tell. Right. It seems like there are plenty of lessons to be learned from Virginia but uh, and New Jersey, but they don't paint the story for the entire country. It just says we got to stay focused. And like you said, it's like elections. We just got to work on it every single day. All that said, there's like a little good news. There's some fun news. So um, let's see. Shaniqua, do you have any toasts? I'm not doing roasts this week because there was enough roasting last night. Do you have any toasts? I do. Uh, In Boston, uh, Michelle Wu was elected as mayor of Boston, and she's the first woman and first person of color to hold the position, which means literally only white men have held that position. For 200 years! Yeah, throughout the city's existence. So um, that is definitely a toast. And if I could just add uh, two other quick ones. One is a personal one. My friend, Akri Bombi, uh, ran for the Cambridge School Committee, and she won last night. So congratulations to Akriti. And then just a toast to all of the campaign staffers and volunteers yes. who were working this cycle. You know, a lot of people don't pay attention to these odd-year elections, but you all were, and you put in a ton of work. And I hope that more people will join them, uh, definitely next year, but also in 2023 when we're back in this situation of being in an odd year but need a lot of attention on all the races that are happening. I have a little toast. It's it's for Adam Shifty Schiff, you know, as he is known by Donald Trump. Adam Schiff is introducing legislation called the Pets Belong with Families Act. You guys know how much I love pets. And the act uh, would end the impossible choice some people face between beloved companions and secured housing by eliminating Mm. certain restrictions on overall breeds in some types of housing. And it's endorsed by the Humane Society and several other organizations. And I just read that and I, you know, I... 
every time anything terrible happens, whether it's a hurricane or what, my first rescue cat came from <laughs> uh, Hurricane Katrina because his family oh, had wow. to give him up. And so I always, you know, I always think about I, how I couldn't do that and that horrible choice if you had to make between yourself and like sending your pet. So anyway, yeah. that was like some good news that, is. that we could use. All right, let's take a little breather. And when we're back, I'm excited to be talking to my friend and tour de force hero, Monica Lewinsky. We'll be right back. I could not possibly be more excited to welcome my friend, Monica Lewinsky, writer, producer, anti-bullying activist, and extremely good human to the podcast this week. Hello, Monica. Hi, Alyssa. Hi, girl. I miss you. Girl, do you remember the last time we saw each other? It was like a week before the world shut down and we went to a movie and we were like, um, we have Clorox wipes and our own snacks <laughs> and plastic bags. We're fine. COVID's not going to get us. Exactly. Well, it's funny because um, actually my friends made fun of me for a very long time when I lived in New York the first time because I used to have, I still have like a bit of a whole bed bug thing. And so I used to bring this plastic raincoat to the movie theaters and I would call it my seat protector and everybody would be like, oh, oh, can't go to the movies. Monica doesn't have her seat protector. And, um, but you know, I proved them all wrong. So. Oh girl, it has been, I feel like it's been a couple of long weeks for you. There's been a lot (laughs) happening. It's been a long year. Been a long year. So the finale episode of American Crime Story Impeachment airs next week. I can't imagine. I couldn't put myself in your shoes if I physically fucking tried. I can't imagine the emotional, the psychological, the physical journey from your first conversation with Ryan Murphy about this to having the finale about to air on television. Mon, how did you feel when you embarked on this project? And how do you feel now? Has it been a catharsis? I think it's been more of a learning process than I would say catharsis. Okay. So I think just in terms of not only learning about the process in television and drama and dramatic storytelling, but also learning about myself, learning more history. I mean, I I can't quite pinpoint them, but there were so many times during the script process of the show where my margin note was like, did this really happen? (laughs) So, um, you know, then there was a a great moment where we were sort of on a call about something and Brad Simpson, one of the producers was like, no, no, you didn't say that. You said this. (laughs) So it's just this, you know, a very kind of I heart Huckabee moment of, (laughs) you know, someone like knowing your life better than you know it yourself. So, um, I, th- I think in that way, you know, it's just, it, it, it was really a privilege and, and a great opportunity to be able to participate in the storytelling and working with such an incredible team of Ryan Murphy and Nina Jacobson and, and Brad Simpson and having Sarah Burgess as the writer, you know, that that was sort of one level of team, but then also to, um, in terms of just Beanie and, and Sarah Paulson and everybody else, so. Speaking of Beanie, so when Mm -hmm. I saw the announcement that Beanie was going to play 
Monica Lewinsky. I had so many questions. I mean, first, Beanie was born in 1993 when you and I were literally getting ready to watch the debut of Friends because we are the same (laughs) age. And so she did not live through the coverage of the scandal of the abuse of the president's power the way Mm -hmm. I did. How did Beanie come to play you and how much did she know about you and the scandal when you met? Well, I think I think you raised a really important and interesting point, Alyssa, because um, one of the things that I think was fantastic about Beanie not having lived through that is that a huge portion of the audience members, you know, are also people, the younger generations who hadn't lived through it in the same way. And so I think that allowed her to kind of bring a freshness to the material, to the history, to how she was going to choose, you know, perform. and for me, the, the process of, of Beanie being selected was um, really interesting because I had seen Booksmart, I think not long before Ryan and I met to talk about this. And I'd had this moment of, um, there were just various scenes in Booksmart where there was something about Beanie that captured, I was like, God, that feels like me. That has an emotional truth of me. Um, and probably says a lot that she was a senior in high school and I was thinking about me in my 20s. So <laughs> my immaturity level. But, um, you know, so I, so in that sense, and so when Ryan said that that's who he had, that's who he had been thinking about, uh, there was just a lot that made sense to me about that. And um, yeah, she said, Beanie's just an extraordinary, she's an extraordinary person. And um, she's brought so much, warmth and heart and bravery really to the role. So this, so for anyone who has watched the show, anyone who has listened to your Ted talk or knows anything about you, um, you never spare yourself uh, in any way, shape or form. And you always talk about your role in what happened, but that is very different than working with an actress to depict your behavior at that time in your life when like I would rather forget that time in my life. And I I was not embroiled in what you were dealing with. How did you guys work together to really communicate sort of what you had gone through? Mm-hmm. Well, I think that the, the, the sort of first um, place of entry really for that was around how to do with the scripts and the script process. So um, I I felt that it was very important, not only on a personal level, but also as a producer, that I not be given a pass. Um, And in some ways, I'm sure that there was, I probably would have been um, spared some of my moments of like, oh God, I I can't believe I did that. I said that like, oh, cringy, cringy, cringy pants. Um, I probably would have been spared some of that were I not a producer on the show. Uh, right. But I but it did feel important to me that that I not that I not get it passed that way. And in terms of I think for Beanie, it was very important. Um, I think one of the things that she's done really well in the role is that there there was something around. It's it's like she was bringing me and my experiences to the screen, but there was she also somehow deftly created this like portion of her performance that I think allowed people to also find themselves in the character and find themselves in some of the experiences so that 
even I think I've heard from so many people that were like, well, I wasn't an intern or I didn't this and that, or I didn't X, Y, and Z. There was something about the emotional truth of what yes. she brought to the screen that allowed that. And I, and I think that that was so important, especially because th- that was part of the import of telling this story now is around how the world has changed, how we've looked at things differently for, um, you know, for women, how we look at things differently with power uh, and, and how that's reshaped things and forced many of us uh, who were really indoctrinated into right. the, the those kind of viewpoints, um, whether it was around abuse of power or sexual assault or, you know, the, the myriad spectrum. The One of the things that I thought to that point that I read, I read an interview with Allison Tripp, Linda Tripp's daughter, mm-hmm. where she said- I read that too. This, and I was, I've read it a couple times because I was like, did I fucking read this right? Where she says that she wishes her mother had lived to see American Crime Story because she thinks that Sarah Paulson and Sarah Burgess did such a good job piecing together her mom's complicated backstory, public servant, military spouse, and that it portrayed her in a more flattering way than when she was alive. Does that feel right to you? Generally, that despite her absolute betrayal, and it was an absolute betrayal of you, that even now we can see Linda as a more complicated person as opposed to just a villain. Right. I I think that, um, you know, one of the things that I had to do in this, in the process of the project was um, really kind of create space around what my experiences were, what a dramatized version of this story is, and it's not a documentary. Right. Uh, And recognizing that there are all of these experts, including the actors, you know, who, who bring their talents to, to this show. So I think that it was important for both Sarah Burgess and Sarah Paulson to find what were their perspectives and inroads to Linda as a character and to her narrative. And especially when you think about, um, I think it was Nina Jacobson who kind of like really brilliantly, um, in my opinion, kind of uh, umbrellaed the series in saying that it was about, you know, the women who were in the margins of power to this story, right? So Linda's story there. Uh, Do I feel, I I think that I've always, um, given my experiences, I've Mm -hmm. always tried to err on a side of bringing more humanity to people, allowing people to see more dimension, more context, more nuance. Do I agree 100% with <laughs> all of the ways that's been shown? No. Right. You know, but um, I think I was always going to have more perspective and less perspective. You know, I'm the only right. one in the team who knew Linda. and right. But my opinion of her is always going to be yoked to the consequences of my knowing her. So, right. um yeah, so I think, I mean, I think Sarah Paulson has done an extraordinary job. And, uh, you know, it was one of those weird moments of wearing two hats as a subject and producer. Of It happened particularly at the end of episode five when um, at the Wired lunch. And I was so triggered <laughs> by her performance, you know. But it's like... Right. The, the subject in me is like, oh, fuck, you know, and the producer in me is like, oh, fuck, yeah, this is great. Right. Like if, I, right. if I'm being triggered, that means the audience is getting like an incredibly authentic on point performance. So, um, 
I think that's the thing is that one of the bigger pictures with American Crime Story that they try to do in all this series is around showing us, like we the people in the audience, where were we complicit in this? And so one of the right. places I think we were, you know, pe- well, not, I'm not going to include myself because I was not complicit in you are- <laughs> judging. I was not complicit in participating in 98, but I have done in other <laughs> things that they've covered. So, um, but I think it is, it, it, it was this, you know, the, the kind of um, shrinking down to a trope that was so easy right. for people to do. To your point about dramatic series, dramatic series can only depict so many incidents, mm. so many perspectives when it's, this is, this is a story of many people's perspectives. And this is really one of the first times we've even begun to get a peek at how this impacted your family. Yeah. I think it's near impossible for people to imagine, um, you know, like so many of the, the quote unquote characters in 1998 were public people right? Known quantities to the world. And there were a few of us who were not. Um, And it is incredibly hard to imagine. I don't know that I would have been able to imagine before it happened to me, how far reaching that kind of mushroom cloud of, you know, disruption and trauma. I mean, and it was, you know, it was really, it was devastating for everybody in the family. Um, you know, there's a lot more about my mom that's been in this series. I think that people see it was, you know, for my dad and my stepmom, there were press outside the house, living outside right. the house, right outside the house. And we, and they don't live in a gated home. So, I mean, this is like, literally you walk out the door, you know, my dad would leave to go to work or take the trash out. And th- there were people there. They had to have their house sweeped for bugs. You know, of like, yeah, before I came to stay there. And it was like the people who came figured out there was this tiny triangle corner in the house where we could talk. And if they had microphones outside, nobody would be able to hear us. You know, it's just a, so I think the impact, the impact on people who shared my last name too. Right. Um, you know, w- what that meant is that it's just that there's a much larger circle. Than, right. than just the one person who gets embroiled in this. It's the people who care about you too. The scene where you and your mom are talking in the bathroom and she turns the water on, it's just like, you can't, that that yeah. was, that like their way of trying to protect you had to de- had to extend so far beyond, I think probably whatever would have crossed their mind that they would have to do to protect their oh, child. A, a thousand percent. I mean, and just even all the, circumstances around it. It was my mom's lawyer, Billy Martin, who was just an incredible hero in our family, uh, who had said, again, it was like the microphones because I, we were in the Watergate, right? So, as right. you know, from your time in DC, it's it's the complex, it's this complex that has apartment buildings and a hotel and office buildings. And he's like, there are press who've rented offices across the way who have microphones the kind of like microwave microphones that they could hear into the apartment. Or if there were bugs in the apartment from stars people, we didn't know. So we would talk with the water on, we'd write on toilet paper, flush it down the toilet. Um, it was very lives of others. And when Ryan said that that was sort of a, a, a touchstone film for him around a feeling of the right. show, I was like, that is 100% right. That One of the things I noticed is that in watching the series, Monica, have you ever actually met 
Ken Starr? Because in the series, in whatever I've read in the press, it seems like you are, for lack of a better fucking term, ships passing in the night. Did you guys ever actually meet? So we didn't meet in 98, despite all of the hullabaloo of like all this bullshit around giving me immunity, taking it away. Like we, you have to look a witness in the eye. Um, we hadn't met. And then in um, Christmas Eve of, I think it was 2018, 2017 or 18, 2017, Christmas Eve of 2017, I was having dinner with my aunt and cousin and we were waiting to get seated and there was like a guy in a hat with his family and there was something about him that looked familiar and I was just kept looking at him and looking away and he was looking at me and then he came over and he said, <gasps> you know, I'm Ken Starr. Ah! And it was like, <sighs> oh, or did I go over to him? I think I, I might have started to walk over to say, are you? Because it, at some point it locked in. I right. Clearly I have like uh, erased the experience from my memory. And it was just, a, you know, it was just jarring on so many levels. Um, Christmas but I Eve. Think, I know. <laughs> Well, I'm Jewish, so it was fine. I know, but, but um, still. <laughs> it was, a, I, think, I think what was interesting to me too is just my gallows humor was like still, you're like, oh, okay, that's still here because we, we went and sat down and I was really shaken and I thought, oh, I've got to email my therapist with the subject line, I met Ken Starr because Fuck. I will win like, you know, patient email of the year for just the idea of that. Um the shock value. So it was, it was bizarre. It was a yeah. very bizarre experience. On top of American Crime Story, you have a documentary that is out mm -hmm. now on HBO Max, just premiered, called 15 mm -hmm. Minutes of Shame. And one of the interesting things both about American Crime Story and then the doc is that when I was watching it, even though, like I said, we were the same age, it, it did not key into me that, that the story being broken back in 98, whatever the fuck year it was at this point, yeah. actually happened on Drudge. And yeah. that this was the beginning of the internet being one of the worst places on earth. And <laughs> in 15 Minutes of Shame, you talk about how the internet has ushered in a culture where public shaming can strike fast and target anyone. And Given the experience of reliving everything that happened back then and the mm -hmm. documentary, what would you want people to know, aside from the fact that everyone should go watch the documentary tonight, Thank what you. do you need people to know about being better social media citizens? Um, I think the the thing that's really important for us to remember is it's it's there's so many layers of fucked upness that mm -hmm. we have right now in our online world. And there are so many different avenues where changes need to happen in different um, different arenas, right? Legal and technical and this, but the human behavior part, our, our social, our human nature, the social behavior, that part can start to change right now. Right. And that's sort of the best place to start. It's not the only thing that needs to be done. And so for me, I think that what the documentary you know, what people will see when they watch it is sort of these, you know, you'll you'll see four stories of, of people, some of whom, you know, you'll know their story, some of whom you won't. And you understand the context better. You understand right. how much humanity is lost 
in them, you know, in, in what's happened to them as a result of their public shaming. And, and it ranges, you know, from people who've made a mistake to, you know, one of the young people who it's like, she did everything right. right. And it's still, and still this happened to her. So um, I think that, that it is, it's recognizing that, that when you comment, when you retweet, you have picked up a stone and you've thrown it at someone. Right. It's, I think it's really remembering that and that we, um, you know, because of the internet, because of screens and other things, we've lost the ability to read someone's facial interactions, to feel their pain. So look, this is not even remotely the fucking same, but I'm going to use it as an example. So I, when I wrote my first book, you get your Woo, book deal. So good. Thank you. So good. And, you, and you're like, okay, I'm going to do this. And then you wake up every morning and you're like, this was a fucking terrible idea. What was I thinking? <laughs> and so here's, for you, it is so much, I mean, it is magnified. It is, it is a thousand million times more than I ever could have considered when I was writing my book. But how throughout the whole process of the show, of the documentary, how did you take care of yourself. You know, how did you, for me, it's like, you know, one day you're like, this is awesome. It's going to be awesome. And the next day you're like, oh my, oh my God, can I get out of my contract? And so how did you take care of your brain and your health and everything while you were going through this? Yeah. Thank you for asking. Cause I think this is, um, I think it's just, I always learn things from hearing other people talk about what they do. And so I, I hope it's helpful to some, I, I was in a very lucky position and I made the choice to um, make sacrifices to be able to do this as well financially. But I realized that I was going to, I couldn't do this without like a team of people. Right. And that ranged from some people who were paid and some not, but mainly this sort of mental health team. And so I had more therapy. I took on, I mean, my, my normal therapy is a trauma psychiatrist Mm -hmm. who's incredible. I added into my mix, a somatic therapist. Mm -hmm. Um, I've been doing kind of a special, certain kind of energy consciousness work with someone for over 10 years. So it was like increasing from once a week to twice a week. Right. And then I also had someone who's like this very special, brilliant fairy in my life who molds to a lot of different roles, um, whose background is in psychology as well. Like she was somebody who sat on Zoom with me when I worked on my notes um, so that when I was finally able to watch episodes at home rather than in the office, she was there with me so that I just had someone that I could turn to, that I could share my trauma with. Right. So, I mean, there was that. And then I also had other people as well who sort of looked after me in different ways. I also used it as an excuse to buy a lot more crystals. And, you know, we um, love our crystals. We love our crystals. Oh, yeah, exactly. So I had to make a real concerted effort, which has not always been historically easy for me, to lean on other people. Right. You know, that's, um, I'm very, like, nurturing and having other people around and gathering is very natural to me. Right. But being able to lean back and rely and say, I need help and can you help me this way or I need more is not easy for me. Um, so I, I had to get better at that. Can you say, looking back on everything that you have accomplished, everything you have faced, are you proud of yourself? I, 
am. I Good. Am. <laughs> it should be. You know, it's not always. Um, I, I had a, if, if we have another minute, I had a yeah. I had an experience when I graduated from uh, my when I got my master's, and it was graduation morning, and I was not feeling very excited about the graduation, and I kind of just thought, what's wrong with me? Like, I'm getting a master's from the London School of Economics. Like, right. I can't believe I passed, <laughs> and, uh, et cetera, et cetera. And I had this moment where I thought, you know, if I ran into someone this morning who and was like, oh, what's going on in your world? And they said, oh, yeah, I'm going to collect my diploma. I got my master's from LSE this past year. Um, I would think, oh, fuck, I could never do that. That's amazing. And somehow taking it out of myself and seeing how I would react to someone else having had that accomplishment, it really shifted me that day. And Mm -hmm. so I think that since then it has, um, I still worry a lot, but I think that those seas are allowed to part at times. And I have a moment of like, okay, I feel the most gratified when I'm hearing from someone that something that I've sort of, you know, blood, sweat, and tears to to make or do has helped them, has helped ease their suffering in some way. You know, it just, that makes it worth it. Monica, I love you. Thank you for coming on the show. Thank you for for coming on the show. I, uh, I can't, I can't recommend the show enough and I will be tuning in this week and next to see, to see how it all ends. Yeah. Love you. Love you. This episode is brought to you by IQ Bar. Power up your life with superior brain and body nutrition products from IQ Bar. Their plant protein bars are the perfect low-carb breakfast. Their IQ Mix Zero Sugar Hydration Drinks replenish electrolytes. And their IQ Joe Mushroom Coffees will keep you focused all day long. Start each day right with IQ Bar's brain and body boosting bars, hydration mixes, and mushroom coffees. Their ultimate sampler pack includes all three. IQ Bar empowers doers with superior brain and body nutrition. All their products are entirely free from gluten, dairy, soy, GMOs, and artificial sweeteners. And today, Hysteria listeners get an exclusive offer of 20% off plus free shipping. Just text HYSTERIA to 64000. One thing I love about IQ Bar is, first of all, right now it's really dry where I am. Oh, okay. It is hard for me to stay hydrated. I, I just like, I, I'll just be going through my day and I'll be like, why am I so like... Parched. I'm parched. I'm in a bad mood. I feel like I'm going to pass out. And it's, ah, you got to drink some water. You got to stay hydrated. I really like their IQ Mix Zero Sugar Hydration Drinks because it allows me to rehydrate myself at a time when I feel like the atmosphere is trying to take all my moisture away. Well, and sometimes you need more than just water. Sometimes you need more more than just water. I also love IQ bars because I love a portable breakfast. I love a grab-and-go breakfast. No dishes. Love something I can walk around holding and eating. I like something I can eat in my car without endangering the lives of me and every other motorist on the road. A breakfast burrito. (laughs) Not, Not the safest thing to eat behind the wheel. IQ bar, go ahead and do it. Good for you. Great ingredients. Helps you stay focused and alert throughout the day. And mm-hmm. um, yeah, and you don't have to dirty any dishes. Refuel smarter with IQ Bar's Ultimate Sampler Pack. That's seven IQ Bars, four IQ Mix sticks, and four IQ Joe sticks. 
And now our special podcast listeners get 20% off all IQ Bar products plus get free shipping. To get your 20% off, just text Hysteria to 64000. Get your discount. Text Hysteria to 64000. That's H-Y-S-T-E-R-I-A to 64000. Message and data rates may apply. See terms for details. Welcome back. We're at the part of the show where the personal is political and the political is personal. Shaniqua, what's the dominant emotion you feel when you look at your 21-year-old self? <sighs> I, uh, man, uh, just a lot of, um, not regret, but just kind of like, man, girl, you could have done a little better with life. But, you know, you make it out. I always, something I did too much when I was 21 was like, have lots of Everclear. And if I could go back, I would tell myself that's not a good thing to, to consume on a regular basis. When I started thinking about this, I was reminded that when I was in my early 20s, I had a roommate, Amy Volpe. Yes, I'm name checking you, you asshole, who <laughs> we used to share. We shared a room with two twin beds. And she woke up one morning and was like, you know what you look like? And I was like, what? She's like, you look like a seventh grade boy named Liam. So I think that sums up uh, my early 20s in some way, shape, or form. Uh. But anyway, we are inspired by having Monica Lewinsky on the show today. And her show, American Crime Story Impeachment, takes a look back. And we're going to take a look back at our younger selves, all the moments in our youth we wince at and discuss how it's impacted us today. So basically, girls, welcome to therapy. Uh, but before we get there, let me introduce our two panelists today. She's a writer, activist, Hysteria's nervous little pepper. It's Grace Para. Hi, it's Grace. Me. Hi, guys. How are you? Girl, how you doing? How's the pepper? Oh, uh, the pepper is pepping. The pepper's real peppy, real spicy. <laughs> I would say I'm at like a seven on out of 10 in terms of spicy factor today. Oh, okay. <laughs> but you know what? What? I think I'll get a little bit spicier by the time this conversation's done because it's a good one. I'm real excited. Well, then yeah. I'm going to uh, introduce our final panelist who may be a little less spicy because she's been posting about eating dinner at 5 p.m., which I fully okay. co-sign. <laughs> I, I mean, I, I first of all, I very much appreciate that I have you in my corner on this, but this is a new thing for me. I'm, I was considered myself very uh, European, very... Uh, uh, Worldly, I imagine myself at uh, a court dinner that goes until two in the morning. And that's what I thought was a splendid life. And then I discovered what would happen if you had dinner at 4 p.m. <laughs> and um, and what happens is like, you, you know, when it normally feels like 1 a.m. and you're going to bed kind of full with indigestion and drink too much wine and you're going to wake up at 4 a.m. really, really thirsty and then just have a bad day the next day. What happens is at 7 p.m., you're like, woo, it must be late. Oh, it's only 7 p.m. <laughs> There's like two movies I could fall asleep to tonight <laughs> before I even go to bed. And for those who couldn't tell, that's actor Michaela Watkins. <laughs> okay. I'm sorry. I waited for the, I, I forgot that part. No, why? I think everyone knew it was you anyway. I mean, we're the two, we're the two seniors of the group. Okay. So you guys, earlier in this podcast, I spoke to Monica Lewinsky about her show, American Crime Story Impeachment. And 
We've all watched it. And I am very curious because we all experienced the actual scandal, which will be referred to as the Clinton scandal, not the Lewinsky scandal. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Um, at different stages in our life. So, Michaela, I want to start with you. When you watch the show, how has the ordeal changed from when you witnessed it in real life to now when you're watching the show? Oh, God. Where to even begin? I mean, my disgust with the GOP at that time was so overwhelming that I was like not even, I, I it really overshadowed for me to have overwhelming concern for Monica Lewinsky, which, which when I watched this show now, I was like, look what we did to this person. Totally. Um, and, and I, I don't recall finding Monica Lewinsky jokes funny at the time, but I don't, I don't think it ever occurred to me that it, I should defend her either. And um, you know, I, I, I just, a couple of things really bubble up for me. One <laughs> that I was about the same age as her at the time and, and still I am. And I could have been her at any point in that whole totally. thing. I mean, I had such crushes on narcissistic men and found so much validation in them even just looking at me and was such a romantic that I would write write sort of the violin swelling scene in my in my head and play it out in my life and it would be so meaningful and I would be so consumed and while I might have been getting totally toyed with I justified it in my head as this huge romantic moment to sort of both make it okay and to give myself permission to be so head over heels, you know, by by uh, imbuing it with so much importance and that this is a once in a moment. Now, if you tell me that the president was going to make moves on me, I mean, game over. I I absolutely would have been eating out of the palm of his hand at that time. Right. And like for me, so you and I were both about the same age as Monica mm-hmm. when this happened. And I remember yeah. being... Like, I've, I remember being so weirdly pragmatic about certain parts of it. Like, my mm-hmm. roommates and I came home and we watched it on our black and white television uh, mm-hmm. after work, the the trial mm-hmm. and whatever portions there were. And mm-hmm. it was like, I can't believe he lied to the American people. And I can't believe he wasted our taxpayer money on this and blah, blah, blah. And I remember thinking that the jokes they made about Monica could have been made about me. You know, I was right. not a slim gym. I was, uh, you know, it was all the things that they tried. She was crazy. They all said she was crazy. She was a stalker. Oh, I recall I mean, certain points in my 20s when I was like, I think that's technically called stalking, but I'm not sure. Like, we didn't. <laughs> I mean, is is making a playlist and driving by your boyfriend's house all night long it, and, and just queuing it up so that the U2 song comes on right as you're, like, passing by their house, is that considered stalking? Because guilty. By playlist, you know you mean mixtape. Of course I do. (laughs) Grace, how old were you? Do you remember learning about it or do you remember experiencing it sort of in real time? Oh, I was experiencing it in real time for what was in elementary school, though. So I didn't know things like semen. I didn't know what that was, really. Um, So I was learning a lot about anatomy as it was happening. Uh, But I do remember, I was living in Texas. Remember, this is where I'm from. Uh, All of the the tropes of, well, this is her fault, and she's a whore, and why did she tempt him? All the blame was placed on Monica. And and the, the biggest take that I remember consistently that is still seared in my brain 
frankly, until I watched the show, which I'm, I, I can't recommend enough. It's fantastic. Uh, are the late night jokes. I mean, yeah. every single late night host had his take. It was always a male, always a straight mm -hmm. white guy. Mm -hmm. And it was always framed in such a way to make Monica Lewinsky the butt of the joke. I mean, not to say mm -hmm. that like Bill Clinton wasn't, wasn't uh, the butt of the joke as well in many cases, but it just felt, it just felt so mean spirited. And that's the biggest shift that I've seen from when I was experiencing it as an elementary school kid to today. We've now realized that there is nuance in the way that the media can report on these stories, specifically in the way that they can report on it from the perspective of, of the female in this case. Uh, and, and I have to say that that it's exciting to see this new trend of documentaries like the Britney Spears documentary, which talks about the responsibility of the media. And of course, though the American Crime Story is, is fictionalized, it's still in the same vein of like, well, wait a second, let's look at the responsibility of other people in this story that we weren't looking at back in the 90s. Um, so yeah, semen and media. <laughs> That's, you know, that was one of the things I think that I was so struck by is the scene in the show where they go into the late night rooms, which again is fictionalized, mm -hmm. but still it's like the, the, she, they, there were people who just spent their days trying to make her, her, the butt of jokes. And what's yeah. also mm -hmm. so interesting now is when some of these uh, comedians, late night hosts have been called on to be like, do you like feel bad about what you did? And a lot of them are like, they were jokes. I stand by them. And I was like, whoa, is it so hard to say you're fucking sorry? Like, yeah. That, yeah. Yeah. Or that your yeah. or that your 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 perspective was super skewed. You know? Right. Um, mm -hmm. because I, I remember being in the writer's room of a show I did in uh in I think it was 2014 or 13. And somebody made an actual Monica Lewinsky joke. I mean, like a real throwback moment, you know? And I think we laughed at more of the like, wow, here we are, <laughs> you know, 15 years later and somebody decided to pull one out. But it, there was a writer's assistant, a young woman. I mean, she was probably 24, 25. And she said, oh, I love Monica. And it was honest to God, the first time I've ever heard anybody go, stop the room. These are her bosses. These are her higher ups, everybody. And went, oh, I love Monica. And I paused and I was like, oh my God, we're, we're awful. Like right. we just laughed yes. at some joke. Like I said, more because of the, of the out of contextness of it all. But still, I was like, this, this, this woman just did what we all should have just been doing. Mm -hmm. And right. not one of us did. No. Shaniqua, how yeah. old were you when the actual scandal unfolded? Um, so in 1998, I was 11. So I was in middle school. Um, and I, like, as an adult, I actually feel really <laughs> bad about the way I came out of the entire scandal thinking about Monica Lewinsky. I distinctly remember thinking, oh, she's like a seductress. Mm -hmm. I, I doubt I knew that word at 11. <laughs> but, like, you know, she tempted him. Like, how could she do that to the president? He's just trying to, you know, run the country. And really framing him as this, like, helpless, defenseless man who just could not help himself around attractive young women. And, you know, <laughs> the first kind of reintroduction to the this Clinton scandal uh, for me as an adult was Slow Burn, um, yes, the podcast. Yes. And listening to that, I just, I, I, again, I really, I was just upset with myself. Like now I consider myself like a feminist and, you know, I'm always shouting from the rooftops about like what women need, how we should treat them and, you know, the patriarchy, but was so easily swept up in this narrative that Monica Lewinsky did something bad and wrong. Um, and not that a man who was so much more senior than her and not just any man, the president of the United States, could not be an adult 
you know, say this woman is way too young. Maybe she is attracted to me, but I need to draw a boundary and not do that. And one of the lines that was really interesting to me in the um, in the series was one of his advisors was just like, there's no way the president risked his presidency on a on an intern. And that's all I kept thinking when I listened to Slow Burn. He literally risked it all just because he couldn't keep it in his pants. He and And one of the sort of, just as a sidebar, one of the things that you learn both from Slow Burn and from the show is that Ken Starr's posse mm-hmm. was Brett Kavanaugh, mm-hmm. Ann Coulter, yeah. and George yep. fucking Conway. Oh my God. I yeah. mean, that part- All still very relevant. Totally, yeah. And it's much more, it's it, it, it's it's clearer, I think, in Slow Burn because these, in, in the show, they're kind of minimal characters. I don't even know if there's ever anything on the screen that says like George- Conway. But that whole thing, I was like, oh my God, you know, that man tried to redeem himself by going against Trump. It's like, oh, you have to repent much earlier in life, my friend. Think about what kind of a seamless, like, trajectory those three have had, too, and how hard Monica has had to fight for her perspective to be seen. I mean, it's, 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 it's fucked up. It's fucked up. A woman who's clearly like smarter than all of them, you know, could have accomplished so much more. And they just got to kind of skate through. Mm-hmm. I have a question for you guys. In, in listening to you, Shaniqua, you brought up just a really interesting idea of like when the phrase power dynamic was first introduced with regard mm-hmm. to the to the Clinton scandal. Because I don't think I've I heard about that until uh, certainly like in the last few years. But when we were first living this in real time, the idea of a power dynamic was just never totally. introduced. No, she was yeah. as she was as complicit in quotes, mm-hmm. in what happened as he was. They were like equal partners in this. And yes. uh, it's, and that is, and you know, the interesting thing too, for all of us, I think the only way we really heard about the scandal back in the early nineties was the nightly news. I mean, it was yeah. the yeah. morning news and the nightly news. It wasn't sort of what we think of now as like these more skewed cable news programs, which are more conservative or more liberal. I mean, we were literally getting this shit from like Tom Brokaw. So Shaniqua, it's not surprising to me that an 11-year-old watching the nightly news was like, this seems fucked up. He's yeah. the president. And we also, <laughs> yeah. I think, view the presidency a little different now than we probably did back yeah. in the early 90s. But you guys, now that we have seen impeachment. We know Monica was a producer on the show. Mm-hmm. What was the most striking or surprising thing you witnessed knowing that this was her helping to tell her own story? Grace. The most striking thing to me, I realized in my uh, recalling how I how I first remember this, this scandal, was I just automatically associated John Goodman's portrayal of Linda Tripp with Linda Tripp. Yes. Like that's, that's the Linda Tripp that I saw. It was always John Goodman portraying Linda Tripp. And I love that we saw a very different kind of uh, more nuanced, oddly humane portrayal of Linda Tripp as done beautifully by Sarah Paulson in this, in this uh, that's the first thing that struck me. I don't know if you guys felt the same way. I'm very curious. I did. Well, I love how she she threw shade at her also. Any opportunity. Yes. <laughs> yes. Yes. Everybody is just on their way out the door like, wow, she's a hateful lady. That was something. Um, I will also say that my comfort level with watching it, like I didn't have, I didn't feel cringy about it knowing that Monica was a producer on it because I was right. like, I know yeah. I'm about to watch something that's been vetted by the person who was actually living it. And that made me as a viewer feel much more interested, excited about it, and ultimately um, safer watching it. 
Yeah, yeah. And Grace, to your point about the way Linda Tripp was portrayed, Monica could have definitely pushed to kind of throw her under the bus more. But I have to imagine after having gone through what she went through, she understood the nuance that comes with people. And you don't just show up wanting to be an evil person. Um, And if you have you know, a bit of agency and how people kind of appear in the the art you're creating, um, you know, maybe you can be generous to them or at least show them a bit of Absolutely. praise. Absolutely. And I think Monica did that really beautifully. Well, and you know, what's so interesting, you guys, is that in Vanity Fair, there's an interview with Allison Tripp, Linda's daughter, where she mm-hmm. says she wishes mm-hmm. her mom had been alive to see this. Wow. Because she felt, th- think about that. Think about, to me, the thoughtfulness and care or whatever she contributed, whatever Monica contributed to that part of the storyline, that the woman who could have easily, as Shaniqua just said, been portrayed as a straight-up villain was mm. nuanced. You know, she comes off as a patriot. She comes off, it's like, like it was, she comes off as complicated as human beings can mm-hmm. be, right? It was mm. not, she was not this one-dimensional person. And so the fact that Allison Tripp, who again, she made the comment after only watching one or two episodes, but the fact that she said that this was probably the most humane and reasonable interpretation of what her mother was actually going through is pretty fucking nuts. Yeah, it is. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that the fact that the person who's like smoking Virginia Slims through the whole show is the <laughs> only person who's still not with us out of this whole scandal is is, is um, sad and also <laughs> a little not surprising. But I was yeah. going to say that I felt like and I've watched I'm caught up and I feel like so far um, it has been pretty kind in a way like to both. Hillary and to Linda and mm-hmm. to kind of all the women, Kathleen to um, to all the women who are brought forward in this in this whole entire scandal and and I I, I think it's really nice also that Monica has is in a place where she can own the naivete and the silliness and the um, a lot of the yes the privileged background of her character um, she doesn't make her. A victim. It seems like a pretty true depiction of what someone is like at that age, and certainly, obviously, her. But she doesn't seem to shy away from sort of unflattering sides of of that. Um, and I thought that was really a, a beautiful. Um, I, I don't know. I hope psychologically there's incredible closure. You know, I would. I agree. I would say, yeah, um, yeah. I, it's just the thing that just really burns my beans on this whole matter (laughs) is watching it and seeing played out in real time that this, and I I imagine it still happens, but man, that this was really the playbook of the nineties is that when you were cheating on someone, you said that the woman was crazy Mm -hmm. and you were Mm -hmm. so believed you, that, that accusation was never even remotely, even a little bit questioned. I believed for so long that so many women that my boyfriend in my 20s was flirting with were crazy, even though he was cheating Uh, on me with them, you know? uh, And I'm trying to think how many women walked around in their 20s because maybe I flirted with somebody's boyfriend and that I was called crazy or they flirted with me and they said, oh, do you like her? And no, she's crazy. I mean, we have no idea that we all assumed that each other was batshit at that time. (laughs) If we were in any way alluring or Mm self-possessed. No, totally. And when you look at, so here's the thing, you know, Beanie Feldstein was probably, I think between like five and six when the scandal happened. And 
So for her to, I think, really be able to understand what was going on, it had to it had to come from Monica. And it's clear that they had a very close relationship mm-hmm. um, and, and have a close one now. So could you imagine in your early 20s the stuff that you were doing? I mean, Shaniqua, when you were 22, what do you recall about yourself? You know, it's really funny. When I was 22, I was actually a White House intern. <gasps> oh, my <laughs> so, God. Oh, my God. I had yeah. no idea that was not a setup. <laughs> yes. Oh, wow. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. So, you know, watching that, I was just kind of like, I moved to D.C. and, like, was interning at the White House because I was literally obsessed with Barack Obama. Like, he started running for office when I was in college, and it was just a huge deal. And, you know, I went to UNC. You rush Franklin Street. Like, when you beat Duke, we rush Franklin Street when Barack Obama won. And so I just was like, I got to get to D.C. Like, this is where I need to be. And so I am not in any way saying Barack Obama would be like Bill Clinton. But if he had been, like, I would have totally been open to that. Um, So, you know, I can see how she ended up in that place, you know, especially when you get involved in, like, democratic politics. You usually really care about the issues. You really care about the candidates. And you think that they are just these amazing people Kind of, uh, and I think, you know, not now, but looking back, maybe, you know, a little flawless. You know, you have to be a really good person to get to this place. And so she was probably just like completely transfixed. And you never imagined that the president of the United States would pay any attention to you. But that happened with her. And so I can see how she got to that place. Um, And yeah, I mean, in my early 20s, I literally believed almost anything uh, a guy told me. Like, one of my exes, I found a bra in his room. And by the, yeah, by the end of the argument, it was my fault. And I felt bad. Like, I actually oh felt yeah. bad. Oh, yeah. And so, I mean, I, you know, unfortunately for her, this was involving the president of the United States. But I think all of us in our early 20s have done really dumb shit that we did not want broadcast across the national news. Shaniqua, I know that song so <laughs> So well, I, I, let me tell you something. I busted my boyfriend who had, I, we lived in Portland where you can just stick money into it, like um, poker machines all over the place. Like they're in the deli, they're in the grocery store, they're everywhere. You can just stick a 20 in there and play video poker and double it or lose it. And he had an addiction and he oh was God. stealing all my tips out of my, out of my drawer um, from my, from bartending and he would go play them. And I busted him and he paused and he hit the wall really hard and turned around and then really dramatically said to me in a very low, quiet voice, I put a down payment on an engagement ring for you. <gasps> and I was like, oh. And also with my money and also, <laughs> I don't know if I want to marry you. And also, oh, I'm such a jerk. I busted his surprise. Yeah. What the what? No, you guys, same. Early 20s, had a boyfriend, found out they were cheating on me through some other people. Oh, God. And uh, when I confronted him, which took all of the courage I had in my body, he was like, so you trust gossip over me? And I was like, no, 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 like they saw you. And he's like, what did they see? He's like, and also if I'm talking to other people, it's actually not your business. And by the end of that (gasps) conversation, I was like, you're right. (laughs) 
Oh, like what? Uh Yeah. My God. I wanted to ask, one thing that I realized about myself, specifically at the age of 22, right out of college, is when the connection between socializing and alcohol became so blurred that every Mm. social event that I went to always involved alcohol, which blurred every every situation that I was in, do you guys feel like in all these situations that alcohol was present? Because for me, every every situation it was in, it's one of those things that I look back and I'm like, in my early twenties, I would have like, Shaniqua, you mentioned Everclear. Yes. What was I doing? (laughs) Why was I drinking tequila shots constantly? I guess, yes, I think so. Yeah. Especially in DC, like alcohol and work, it just kind of goes together. Like they are not separate. Um, And thinking about like some of the harmful experiences I've had with men, like Alcohol was definitely yes. a part of it. And you have to kind of get older to realize, like, it's still not an excuse for people to behave however they want yeah. to behave. But it's used as a tool. I feel like it's constantly used yeah. as a tool to manipulate women, especially yeah. right out of college. Like, those of us who experienced some level of fun social drinking in college but hadn't yeah. necessarily gone overboard yet. And you just you, you feel like the drinking yes. that you do in college is the same in the real world. Right. And I barely drank in college. Yeah, so I was the same way. My early 20s was yes, just Yes, like- I was the exact same way. But and also part of being out of college, and especially in D.C., Shaniqua, as you say, is that you're sort of emulating actual adults. Mm. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like you say, the, you see the adults are going to the Capitol Grill and they're having a scotch yep. and you're like, well, I want to network, in quotes, <laughs> too. Exactly. And so I'm going to go to the Hawk and Dove and I'm going to just stay there until someone asks me what I do. You know, like that's the <laughs> – and then think it's a serious conversation, by the way. Yeah. I was drunk on low self-esteem at the time. <laughs> I, I'm so sorry. I have to ask you this question, Shaniqua, and, and Alyssa. Is DC as bleak, lonely, and depressing as it is depicted in this show? Yes. Yeah, like all of my friends, every friend I have from DC was through work. Mm-hmm. I, I don't think I, if I didn't know them from college, I can't think of anyone I just like randomly mm-hmm. met out and we became really good friends. That's exactly right. I think that part of it is that it is a transient city if you work in government and there are elections every two or four years or six years, whatever it is, and people mm-hmm. come and people go. And so I think that if you are an actual person who was raised in D.C. or does something outside of politics, it's a mm-hmm. very different experience mm-hmm. than political D.C., that's my yeah. that's my two cents because I agree. It's like coming to LA to be a podiatrist. <laughs> right, you'll be fine. You'll be fine. You'll enjoy yourself mightily. But okay, okay. Is there anything when you look back on now that you are an adult? We're all adults now. Now that you're an adult, is there anything you look back on and you're kind of like proud about how you handled it? Or you look back and you're like, oh, okay, I did all right there. I I mean, I'm proud of, I feel like I had a confidence that I then quickly lost in my mid twenties that I have been working hard to regain. And now in my thirties, I'm maybe better mid thirties. Um, I had a, I had a fearlessness when I was 22, where I would happily say yes to going to a party where I knew one person or going, uh, you know, go, go, going into a work situation where I barely knew anybody and didn't know how things were going to turn out. I feel like I got a lot more self-conscious into my mid twenties. Um, and again, like I've been working just to sort of make that better, but there was a fearlessness in, in that particular age of being 22 that I think you know, Monica in in the show kind of had that too. I really identified with it. Yeah. That, you know, mm-hmm. she said yes yeah. to things. And and there's something that's really pure and sweet about that, that I, I miss about mm-hmm. myself at that age. That I, I look back on and think like, hey, that was a, that was an okay version of you. Yeah. And, you know, I would definitely agree. Um, 
you know, a lot of people don't know this, but I thought I was pretty ugly until I was like 21. <laughs> and then in my early 20s, I started to feel like, oh, I mean, not that looks dictate everything, but, you know, it's a big yes. part of your self-esteem when you're young. And yeah, as I got to my mid to late 20s, um, you know, that confidence started to wane. And I think it's because of a lot of the experiences, unfortunately, that I like had with mm. men, um, just kind of making me question oh, maybe I'm not as great as I thought. And I am trying to, you know, build that back. But I will say something I am also pleasantly surprised by is like, I've just gotten away from people, please. Yes. That mm -hmm. has been my entire, most, all of my 20s for sure and some of my 30s. But getting away from that and just, this is very cliche, but as you get into your 30s, it's just like, oh, I actually don't care what people think. Some people, yeah, but most people I don't care. And so I don't have to keep them happy, especially at my mm -hmm. own expense. Michaela, what about you? I relate to that, Shaniqua, for a variety of reasons. One, I didn't come into my own physically until my 20s. And um, it was very empowering. I, I, I'm i going to say it. There's a few things that I'm, I'm proud of myself for. One, that same boyfriend I mentioned earlier ended up, like, basically leaving me bone dry. Like, took everything. Took all my, I mean, had been slowly draining my bank account. Um, lying and lying and lying. He was a pathological liar. Karma somehow has not found him. I heard what he's doing for a living now. And I'm sort of like amazed that he's not in jail. But um, I just didn't have anybody to fall back on for, for support in that. And I uh, I pulled myself up out of that. And I'm, I'm forever proud of myself for that. Um, yeah. I, I just sort of took control of my life and, and turned it around, uh, starting just with nothing. And that was at like 28, you know? Mm -hmm. The second thing is, the biggest thing that I overcame in my life is I cured myself of feeling um, really prey and and turned on, not just like prey, not just like a victim to, but really uh, just really had my dashboard lit up by narcissists. I mean, truly just um, like moth to the flame, really love them. If they, if they shine their light on me, I felt like that was... Uh, paradise. And when they took it away, I was in the hole. And uh, I completely, completely have broken that spell. And that's one of the the, the, the biggest accomplish, accomplishments of my life. <laughs> there was a guy in my acting class when I was Monica's age, when I was like 23, and I was living in New York for a year, I took an audition class. And there was this man who looked like the Marvel man. He looked like a cross between Paul Newman and Robert Redford. Mm -hmm. Gorgeous. A mm -hmm. model, an actor. Um, so just smolderingly good, excellent looks and had this like quiet, rough, rough around the edges quality. And uh, I worked on a scene with him from Oleana, as you can imagine, if you know the Mammoth play, it's just, you know, this older teacher and this younger student and the, the sexual dynamics of it. I was so hot and heavy for this guy. He was married with kids. I couldn't eat. I couldn't sleep. I couldn't function. And then... Uh, one day after we finally put the scene up for class and it, it went really well, he made a move on me <gasps> and I, like he leaned in, like he was going to kiss, kiss me in the hallway afterwards. And I was like, whoa, it had never occurred to me because my self-esteem was probably so in the toilet at that time that I could, could be enticing to this guy who just mm -hmm. seems perfect, you know? Mm -hmm. And I thought that I was immune to, to him ever coming on to me because he's married. I mean, my, my 
my freaking naivete at that time was so stupid. And that's what I mean about Monica. Like, I just wanted him to like me. I didn't, right. I didn't need to go the next level. Yeah. But, but what I was proud of myself for was that I didn't take it to the next level. I that's was like, right. okay, this, yeah. So, you know, oh. one of my favorite, it's so trite, but one of my favorite quotes from Sex in the City <laughs> is the twenties. The twenties are for making the mistakes. The thirties are for learning the lessons, and the forties are for buying the drinks. And so, <laughs> with with that, I have a rapid fire round ooh. question for all of you. Ooh, ooh, ooh. Okay. Okay. If you had to cast your own biopic, who would you have play you, Grace? Stephanie Beatriz from Brooklyn Nine-Nine, who is also a friend of mine. The only issue is that she is at least a foot taller than I am. And that, so I don't know how that would play because I'm a nervous little pepper. But everything else, I think she'd be amazing. That is, I have to say, I because I came up with the question, I had thought about the answer. And <laughs> if you asked Tommy Vitor or John Favreau, they would say Soleil Moonfry because they've all always oh. called me punky. <laughs> but... I would have to go with Rachel McAdams circa the family stone when she's got the old yellow Volvo, the NPR canvas yes. bag and laundry. Yes, yes. So I say that's probably who I would pick. Shaniqua, what about you? Um, Probably just because I'm obsessed with her. But Gabrielle Union. Yes. Uh, yes. Good yes, for yes, you. Yes. Yeah. Being Mary Jane. I mean, mm-hmm. that is not my life, but I identify so much with that show. It's just like trying to make it through life when on the outside everything looks all perfect, but behind the scenes, it's just a lot going on. Michaela, what about you? Oh, God. I wish you gave me some time with this, Alyssa, because <laughs> I'm really just going to hate my answer. Um so much. Uh, so it's somebody obviously who's younger than me, 20 years younger than me playing me in my 20s, right? Sure. Is the idea. <laughs> I don't know who's, t- who's, t- who's 20 years younger than me. I can't think of a single actress. <laughs> um, uh, I was going to say like, uh, you know, if it was, if God forbid something happened to me and they had to pick up now, I'd be like, give it to Sarah Silverman. But who is the, who, who, um, who, who, you guys? Okay. You know what? I can go with Sarah Silverman. I, I think Sarah Silverman's You can great. have whoever you want. Yeah, absolutely. But we're the yeah. same age. Why wouldn't I just do it? But Gabrielle Union's older than Shaniqua. This is yeah. a choose-your-own-adventure, Michaela. <laughs> choose-your-own-adventure. <laughs> well, I'm taking it very seriously. Um, you know, Alyssa, what you said about the Sex and the City quote, I also have a, a version of that quote. That, What's that? That's all mine. Um, I say that in your 20s, you're like, how did I get like this? How did I get like this? Why am I like this? How did I get like this? And then in your 30s, you go, you did this to me and you did this to me. And you start blaming everybody who raised you. And then in your 40s, uh, everybody who raised you or did wrong by you. And then in your 40s, uh, you go, okay, whatever. So what am I going to do about it? And that, that's Ooh, my... And that's on that note... Thank you guys for revisiting some of the most traumatic times in our life. It's very much appreciated. Let's take a quick break. And when we come back, a much needed sanity corner. All right, people, we all know the stakes of the 2024 election are high, whether it's keeping the Senate, taking back the House or stopping Republicans at the state level. If you're ready to make a real difference, Sign up for Vote Save America's 2024 volunteer program. 
And just to make it interesting, we're pitting you against each other. Vote Save America will sort you onto a team, east or west, and you'll compete with a community of other volunteers to maximize your impact on the ground with opportunities tailored to you and the causes you care about. The team with the highest volunteering staff could secure the biggest prize of all, the continuation of American democracy. Head to votesaveamerica.com slash 2024 now and get ready to organize or else. This message has been paid for by Vote Save America. You can learn more at votesaveamerica.com and this ad has not been authorized by any candidate or candidate's committee. Okay, we're back for a little reprieve. It's Sanity Corner. But before we get to it, a little bit of housekeeping. Well, first things first, I've talked to Erin and there's no baby yet. We will keep you posted. But on to actual housekeeping. We're bringing an old segment out of retirement for a very special Thanksgiving episode, and we want to hear from you. Yes, Hills Giving is back. Send us a 30-second voice memo with your most petty Thanksgiving opinion or Thanksgiving-themed hill you'll die on to hysteria at crooked.com, and you might hear it on the show. Also, we've been working hard on a ton of new Hysteria merch in the Crooked store, and the first drop is out now. New arrivals include Let Women Run Shit hoodies, water bowls with your favorite podcasts, Midge and Eleanor, on them, and even a catnip toy. Shop the latest Hysteria holiday merch now at crooked.com slash store. Okay, the house has been kept. Shaniqua, what's your sanity corner? Flowers. I have become obsessed with going to Trader Joe's seeing what they have in the flower section, picking out, like, I always do two colors of the same flower, things that complement each other. And literally every time I'm trimming the stems and arranging them, I'm like, this is so therapeutic. <laughs> I don't know why. <laughs> like putting the water in and then just looking at my finished product and being super pleased with myself. I get that. I love doing flowers. It's like, and then they're with you for like, if you do a good job, like a week. Yeah. You're like, look what <laughs> yep. I did. And if you keep them alive, you're like, I'm a fucking genius. <laughs> Exactly. I was at a home good quick story. I was at a home goods once. This is like maybe three years ago. And I was trying to find some fake flowers, fake plants to, to uh, fill up my house. And I had like a few items. I wasn't finding too much stuff, but I, I had a shopping cart. I turned a corner and I ran right into an old Russian woman who looked like she was 112. And she stopped me and she said, they don't let us have fake flowers because it's like they're dead. And then she walked away and I was like <laughs> shook to my core and That's some then, spooky shit. It's super spooky. And I've never, I've only gone fresh flowers and plants and so fake wow. in my, cause I felt like that was an omen. And, and I've since like talked to some sort of spiritual ladies in my life and they're all like, oh yeah, you got to go fresh flowers constantly. You don't want yeah. the fake stuff. So <laughs> I really like that. Well, Sandy Corus, really I good. agree though. I'd like, I'd, I'd like to add that I think dried or preserved flowers totally fine. are an mm -hmm. exception. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. If, if they were your wedding bouquet, but feng shui, I guess I read feng shui books and my uh, things to do in your uh, early thirties. Um, I, that does say like dried flowers are sort of bad energy, you know, uh, it's oh. sort of like stuck energy, oh. but, um, but, but they do sort of always talk about fake flowers as like a nice thing that you could put in your, anyway, I, I just to co-sign the flowers thing, I, I bought some at a, farmer's market. And I was like, why, why am I buying these? I'm not giving them to anybody. I'm not going anywhere. And the, like, the presence of them in my life made mm -hmm. me so happy. Yeah. Every time I looked yes. at them, I was so happy. <laughs> and they were just, 
not for me. Nobody was going to even see them. Nobody was coming over. I just, every time I walked in the room, I was like, flowers. (laughs) (laughs) Wait, okay. Grace, what's your sanity corner? Okay, so kind of related, actually. I've been restructuring my weekends a little bit in a way that has made me feel incredibly sane. So let me tell you what the structure is. The structure is I do absolutely everything that I have to do on Saturday. All the cleaning, all the errands, all the cooking, all the calling and talking to people, all the socializing, everything on Saturday so that Sunday I can do jack shit. I don't want to talk to people. I don't want to lift a finger. I want to sleep in. I don't want to, I want to watch football like a fucking slug. And it has changed (laughs) my life. Even, even having one errand to run on Sunday, like it's all I can think about. And I either want to get it done quickly. And then I come home and I'm feeling it like an energy deficit. So if I just do it all Saturday, then Saturday night rolls around and I'm like, I'm good, baby. Let's go. So that would be, that's my recent sanity corner, restructuring your weekend. So you get all the shit over with on Saturday. I do that too. It's a real, it really does help. It's mm-hmm. nice. Cause then you really feel like you earned your Sunday too. Yes. Cause you're like, I really yeah. did it all. Okay. Michaela, what you got? Okay. So uh, the only reason I'm glad Erin is not here right now is because she, I could hear her eyes roll when I'm about to tell you what I'm about to tell you, <laughs> because I'm just, just corny, 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 corny alert. Okay. This is a nice thing you can do for yourself. You don't have to tell anybody. Yes. I'm going on a podcast admitting that I do this now. (laughs) So you know how like you go to bed and, um, your whole brain just swells with anxiety ants, like everything, all, all the like detritus from the day, just like pours into your pores and you're just, the last thing you read is some murder story on people and your phone. (laughs) And you're like, God, that could have been me. I could have been driving and could have been, you know, run off the road and then taken as a sex slave in a trailer park. (laughs) Like that's, that's the thing you go to bed with. You know how that happens to pretty much everybody? Yeah. So my friend gave me this journal and she said, before you go to bed every night, write whatever, whatever is wrong, whatever's sitting in your body wrong, write the, the, the great version of that. Just a page, not anything more. This isn't homework, but you just, you know, if it's, uh, it's raining every day in California, you know, trees are like grass is sprouting. There's streams are filled with water. Uh, everybody's walking around talking about progressive ideas, whatever it is. (laughs) And you say it like it is happening. You write it as if this is your, the, the true thing that's happening. And I'm telling you, I sleep like a baby. I I don't, I don't wake up. I don't wake up full of panic and dread because the last thing I did go to going to bed, my brain doesn't know the difference. If my brain doesn't thinks this is real. That's why I can't watch horror movies because I think I'm actually being chased (laughs) and like stabbed. I have the same, uh, same issue with horror movies, with horror movies. Also, just before I go to bed, I've started with the, um, Harry Styles' calm story. Oh, I recommend on the calm app. I highly recommend it. Um. It is. (laughs) It's like he. I'm like laying there, and I'm like, I think he cares about me. I think he cares about me being calm and breathing deeply and snuggling Um. up in my cozy bed. He and Kate Winslet, there are two, and they are very, very helpful. Oh, yeah, it's very soothing. That's a good tip. 
My sanity corner is that I have started, I don't know what channel it's on here in upstate New York, but I have started rewatching Designing Women. <gasps> Love that show. Oh, I used my to God. watch you, that show all the time. You guys, first of all, I think I've seen every episode 500 times. Yep. You yep. know, when it was when it was on actually television and then when it was syndicated. But like, here's my thing. The reason I love it so much is that I think that, that Julia Sugarbaker, mm-hmm. that, that like Katie Porter is Julia Sugarbaker reincarnated. <laughs> and and that I'm just like, oh my God, she takes, they take people down the same way. But I have just won Jean Smart's early years. Oh yeah. As good as she was now. Yep. Delta Burke. Susan Sugarbaker said some of the wildest shit. And it was all as part of this teaching Suzanne how to like not be racist. But like that show was so ahead of its time. And I just, yeah. if you have not seen it in a while. It's it's all around. It's streaming somewhere too. And I just encourage you because like I have a thing right now where I thought it would be gone when Trump wasn't president. But I really feel a need to see like justice. Like I feel like people are getting away with shit left and right. Mm-hmm. And to Michaela's point, like, I'm so sensitive right now that watching, like, SVU, which you guys know I love, is actually, like, infiltrating my dreams. And I can't. It's, like, not okay right oh, now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, anyway, I have taken it. I have taken out all of my uh, all of my justice-seeking with Julia, Suzanne, Mary, Joe, and Charlene. And it is <laughs> worth it. I cannot wait. Annie Potts in that show, too. Give yes. me some Annie Potts yep. any day, all day, every day. I, that is such yeah. a good show. Jean Smart. Yes. Ugh. Everybody. Let's hear uh, it for Jean Smart's re- recent renaissance. Every She deserves it all. She deserves mm-hmm. it all. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you, Grace. Thank you, Michaela. Thank you to my co-host, Shaniqua. Mm-hmm. And one of our fave people, Monica Lewinsky. Yes. Thank you yes. to the listeners. Yes. There will be more hysteria for you next week. Monica, we're so sorry you had to take one for the team there. Oh. <laughs> Hysteria is a Crooked Media production. Caroline Rustin is our producer. Our executive producer is me, Aaron Ryan. Alyssa Mastromonaco is our co-producer, and Brian Semmel is our associate producer. Kyle Seglin is our sound engineer, and our editor is Sarah Gibalaska and the folks at Chapter 4. Our digital team is Nar Melkonian, Mia Kelman, and Matt DeGroote. Thank you to Juliet Beckstrand for production support every week. 